Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Justin, how is British Columbia these days? It is a beautiful time of year here in British Columbia. We're experiencing a heat wave, much like the one you have in the United States. It's about 70 degrees Fahrenheit today, so really rough weather. 70 degrees Fahrenheit, yeah, that, that must be really tough for you. Yeah. I, th- I, I think I saw 101 today as I was driving home this afternoon. I'm sweating like crazy because of this heat wave. Yeah, those Canadians have some thick blood, that's for sure. <laughs> but actually, much of Canada is experiencing the same heat wave that the U.S. is facing, and I'm just fortunate enough to be here next to the coast where we have a nice coastal breeze that once that one bead of perspiration forms on my arm due to this extreme weather, I can get it nicely cooled down with a beautiful ocean breeze. That sounds lovely, and I would appreciate it if you would stop rubbing it in. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, but uh, so, what have you been up to lately, Seth? Well, aside from my 10-mile uh, runs in the morning, which turn into sweltering heat in the afternoon, and my uh, outdoor yoga sessions, which have me also sweating like a pig in heat, things here have been well. I've recently painted video room at my office to be a bright green, which mm-hmm. is perfect for doing interviews against that I can, so I can key out the backgrounds and add in any kinds of backgrounds that I wanted. So it's almost like someone could be sitting there in outer space once you do the editing. Yes, or in the desert, or in uh, Alaska. Yes. Yes. Definitely. So perhaps one day uh, soon, the Extra Environmentalist will have a video segment where you and I are together, but not together. Definitely. I could just sit in front of a green wall and face an empty chair, and then in post, suddenly that empty chair will be filled with the beautiful body of Seth Moser Katz. It's true, the beautiful body of Seth Moser Katz can be transported through the internet, just as the beautiful voice of Justin Ritchie is transported nearly every day. Yes. Aside from that, I have I just received a uh, bill from the Orange County tax collectors who have informed me that it's now time to pay my taxes on my car. Also paying Chapel Hill Carborough school taxes, which I don't really need to do because I don't go to school or have any dependents who go there as well. So I am contributing to the education of people I don't even know, much like this podcast. Definitely. Definitely much like this podcast, but you're also contributing to government revenue. And that's what we're speaking with Chris Martinson about today. The precarious situations in which governments around the world have found themselves because economic growth is the foundation of the monetary systems and the economies of all the nations on the world. So essentially what's happened is that as the energy, and not just the energy, but the net energy that's been needed to fuel these global economies has started to rapidly 
rapidly declined as the cheap and easy to access oil has become scarcer and scarcer. What's happened is that the growth economy, which fueled all of these nations, is starting to disappear. And so you see that with Greece now. Greece's economy was growing like all other industrialized economies that were growing. And then suddenly they hit a wall. So Greece has hit a wall right now and they are no longer growing their economy. And so what's happened is they've racked up huge debts and those debts are okay as long as they know that the future will be larger than the present economically. But the present is ending up not only to be not as large as they were expecting, but it's actually beginning to contract. And that's for a large number of reasons. But the point is they can no longer service their debt. And when that happens, your government defaults. And when your government defaults, you face a currency crisis. And when your currency no longer works, then currency acts as the reallocation medium of resources in society. So because I have money, I can go and get milk and bread. But when that money no longer works, suddenly it takes either a lot of money to get milk and bread or you have to barter get milk and bread. And there's a lot of reasons why perhaps some bartering can be useful, but we use the currencies we do because they're convenient and for a lot of historical reasons as well. And so there's a, quite a bit of reason to be concerned about the U.S. government because of the size of our deficit. And that's something that's been absolutely the focus of the politicians in Washington currently because they're trying to discuss what to do with the debt ceiling. Should we take on more debt? Should we cut our revenues? Or should we increase our revenues? Should we face all sorts of difficult decisions? And so that's what we talked about with Chris Martinson today. Well... Justin. Are you eating? Yeah, I'm sorry. I was just eating a big tomato that came out of the garden. Oh, cool. There's an upside to all, all this uh, default stuff that's going on in Greece. You can get a 20% return on your government bonds, your Greek government bonds. Actually, it's closer to 40% now. Excuse me, 40%. Yeah, but those, those are Greek two years. And so what that means is that you have to hold on to them for two years. And yeah. let's be honest, Greece's government probably isn't going to be here in two years. Wow. Bold predictions from the extra environmentalist. You hear, heard it here first, folks. Yeah, Greece's definitely. government is going to be gone in less than two years. And if it doesn't happen, sorry. Yeah, you can just download the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist. That, that will be your punishment for... That will be, that will be your punishment, your next uh, Extra Environmentalist episode, which will probably have more predictions on the future. Definitely, such as the sun will rise. Or what Seth will be eating for lunch the next day. Yes. <laughs> so for more uh, up-to-the-minute updates on the world or Seth's lunchbox... Please stay tuned to the Extra Environmentalist podcast, and let's catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to the Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Chris Martinson, author of The Crash Course. Chris, you finished your doctorate in neurotoxicology at Duke University in 1994 and your MBA at Cornell in 1998. After working in business development at Pfizer, you held the position of VP of Science Applications, after which you released in 2008 the Crash Course, which is a comprehensive video detailing the complex interactions between our economy, our environment, and our energy systems. Currently, you are a fellow at the Post Carbon Institute and publish frequent commentary on your website at chrismartinson.com about the rapidly changing situation of the global economy, and you're the author of the recently published Crash Course, The Unsustainable Future of Our Economy, Energy, and Environment. Oh, and like I was saying before, Chris, I work at Duke University, so that's pretty cool. 
that we have that in common. Yeah, go Blue Devils. <laughs> I actually went to UNC, so I'm working here, but I have my loyalties to UNC. <laughs> Understood. You can't switch that. <laughs> yeah, you can't. All right, so so Chris, how did your work in medical research prepare you to recognize that the U.S. was on the path to default and uh, lead you to publish the crash course? Well, you know, it was it was really. Uh, I wish I could say I figured it out all at once. It was a, a progression. So, what happened was, you know, I, I have this background in, in science, so I love data and I'm very comfortable with data. And then I got my MBA, so I get comfortable with financial data as well. And so between those those two pursuits, I think I was reasonably well positioned when in 2002, I started really becoming very uncomfortable with the direction of the economy at that point in time. Very self-interested because I had all this money saved up in a 401k through my jobs and it was getting destroyed in the markets and, and I was getting increasingly unhappy with what my broker was saying. So I, I was really living a very ordinary normal life by, by most measures and doing everything I was supposed to do. Once I started started looking into the economy, though, the first E, that's where I started digging. I, I scared myself within within a couple of weeks when I discovered things about uh, the debt levels of the United States, the entitlement programs, baby boomers, what was going on with how money itself was created. I did not know that, but you know, somehow I made it through all this education and through an MBA program and never learned how money itself was created. And it's not a hard concept. You could teach it in fifth grade easily. And somehow it had evaded me through, through most of my uh, education. And so when I really started digging into the numbers, and letting the data do this do the talking, I became really quite concerned about the sustainability of our economic trajectory. So that was part one of the story. And then as I started digging a little further, I understood that, well, our economy really likes to grow. And, you know, if you're going to value stocks or bonds or do any sort of company valuations, it's always on the growth projection. So how does growth happen? Somehow I missed that whole part of the discussion as well during all of my economics courses because the key part wasn't taught, which is that growth fundamentally comes from energy. And that's where the scientist in me comes out. I am really well positioned to understand how energy and growth go together because I, I used to take cells out of in vitro. We would take cells, grow them in glass containers, and I would feed them. And if I didn't feed them, they, they wouldn't live. And, you know, this happened to me all the time. And I was very familiar through this work I was doing at one part of my life that there's a really strong connection between growth and energy, which I got on a life, life sciences basis. So when I translated that idea over into the economic sphere, it was a direct transference. These concepts are all the same. You need energy to grow. Well, this is where the story really became alarming, right? So, oh, there turns out we are at a moment in time when humans, for the first time in history, human history, are going to face a condition where we have slightly less available net energy next year than we had last year. That's coming. If it isn't already here, it's coming soon. And that's such an extraordinary and profound event that all on its own, it deserves full attention. But when you look at it in the context of our economy, it really, it, every prudent adult owes it to themselves to, to look at that concept and really understand what that linkage is. So that's what really got me out of the gate. Uh, you know, that's, that's the transition from being a vice president at SEIC as recently as 2005, left that job and worked on the crash course, which was published in video form in 2008. It was really a, a multi-year process, though. That first inkling came in 2000 and late 2001, early 2002. That's when I really started to um, pull on that first thread in the carpet. And finally, by 2008, the whole carpet was disassembled. You're talking about in 2001, you're starting to get those inklings. Was there a catalyzing moment 
overall that kind of sparked you more than anything else to break away from corporate America? Was there one moment that you can think back of and say, ah, hi, I remember that now as, as something that got me going down this other path? No, the really, it, it was really, a, I can't identify that aha moment. It was really starting to dig on my own for the information I needed rather than relying on the newspapers to tell me what was right or my broker or any, anything else. You know, something else in my background is I've been very much in charge of my own educational progression through, through most of my life. Yes, I got a, a, you know, these degrees and everything, but I've been a learner my whole life. So it was not a big deal for me to go off and start to learn about economics and self-teach that. That was just sort of natural to me. It's like something I do. That took time. So the, I wish I could say there was this one thing, I read this one thing, and that was it. But really, it, it, it was a nagging feeling. It started to get confirmed. I started to read other things. And, and so it was more like a, a squirrel gathering nuts. You know, and, and soon enough, I had enough nuts to make it through the winter. You know, it took time. For, for that to develop. But once it did, and once it crystallized for me, it became a red pill moment, meaning I couldn't see the world the old way anymore. I could only see it this new way. And that's where, once I started seeing it the new way, the relevance of pursuing the corporate job, pursuing the status, getting the, the higher titles, earning more money, all of that really fell off the vine for me and, and was no longer nearly as important as figuring out how I wanted to raise my children, how I wanted to position my life, what would give me a sense of purpose as we go forward into this next really grand experiment in human history. Uh, I really just decided that I needed a different profession and, and do something completely differently. And let me just put this in context. At the time I made that decision and finally quit my job, I was 42. I had three young children, and I had no idea whatsoever if or whether there would be any sort of pay or job or anything at the other end of this. It was just that compelling. I had to go out and tell people about this stuff that I knew about. It was. It certainly wasn't a very intellectually wise decision. It wasn't very well calculated, but it's all worked out rather well anyway. I guess sometimes good deeds do go unpunished. <laughs> and, and so how has your living situation changed since you first published the crash course? Well, before the crash course was published, which was 2008, by 2005, we'd sold our house in Mystic, Connecticut. And it was a big house, you know, five bathrooms around the coast, whole nine yards, doing that whole thing. And we moved to a small rental in Western Mass and moved one more time to a different rental, which we ended up buying in November of 2009. So in November this year, it'll be two years in this house. And it's much smaller than the one we used to live in. We have a big garden that we're still in the process of putting in. We've got fruit trees in, drilled a second shallow well. We've got solar hot water on the roof now, a little bit of solar photovoltaics, but, but just enough to keep critical things running, and so on and so forth. We've been just busy as bees transforming our property here through permaculture principles and other basic resiliency principles where no matter what comes in the future, we'll be less reliant on external energy and external food sources. We're not going to be completely self-reliant. That's never been our goal, but we'll be less reliant than we used to be. And, you know, that, that both feels good to us internally. It makes sense in terms of the future we think we see coming. It's going to save us money so we can economically justify it. We think it gives us a higher quality of life, even though our standard of living has been willingly sort of pruned back. So on a whole bunch of, of, of reasons, this all makes sense to us, but it's non-traditional, and it's definitely not cookie-cutter, and it's not the American life that you buy in a box and bring home. 
and and live. This is definitely something that we're we're very actively we, my family, my wife, and my children, and I, we're all very actively participating in how we organize our lives. Given the idea that we think there's some really big changes coming, really big. There definitely are some big changes coming. Uh, so Justin and I are both in our mid twenties, and our audience for the extra environmentalists are people in in our in their mid twenties as well. What advice do you have for people? that are our age about surviving a potential global depression or a, you know, a hyperinflation now or in the coming decades? Gosh, I, I wouldn't have a goal of surviving. I'd have a goal of thriving through it. I think that there are enormous opportunities coming. So, so the advice is, is pretty simple. The first, is, first step in the advice is you have to figure out what's going on. Got to figure out what the game is. Everybody who's older than you, all the people who are invested in the system, everybody who's a boomer or older, all of the people who hold the reins of power currently are 100% invested in preserving the status quo. Well, if the status quo is unsustainable, their attention, you know, what they're doing is trying to sustain the unsustainable. It's a broken model. A lot of people your age have figured that out. Out, it peered into it and said, you know, mm, not really interested in that model. Uh, that doesn't make sense to me, so not really going to engage in it. And, and I, I totally get that. At the same time, understanding why it's unsustainable, why, really understanding why the model that, that is so desperately being clung to by the, the generations that have come before you, well, it, it, why that's unsustainable is, is job one. So get that understanding. And, and the crash course hopefully does that. It's done that for a lot of people, but there are other teachers and ways to come to that same set of conclusions. But it's a, it's a hard one, really, ultimately, to really fully internalize the idea that the way we are currently living will not persist. And here's the good news, and this is step two. Two is figuring out, well, if that's true, then what are the implications? What's likely to go away? Because here's, here's what the future is going to be. When I say big change is coming, a lot of people look at that and go, oh, scary. You know, it's going to be dark. It's going to be really, really bad. Possibly, that's true, but it doesn't have to be. And so understanding it's only three things that are going to really be happening in the future. There's going to be stuff that we're currently doing that we're going to keep doing. And there's some things that we're going to stop doing. And there's some new things that we're going to start doing. Any one of those three areas has enormous opportunities in it. So what are we going to start doing? Okay, if you believe the idea that there's peak oil and that energy is going to become much more expensive and it starts to consume an ever greater and increasing proportion of our disposable income, some things make sense all of a sudden. Okay, we don't ship food from 3,000 miles away uh, as much. We, we start to eat more local food. Where we live, eat, work, and play all are much closer to each other than they used to be. Just go to Europe and you can see the model. They, they, they already figured this out decades ago and have been organizing themselves this way. But there's in our country, in the U.S., there's a vast reorganization that has to happen. That'll be a big challenge. It's going to be a big disaster for some people. For other people, it's going to be gigantic opportunities. I think that there's just an incredible amount of work to be done there. And there are things that we're going to stop doing. You know, if, if anybody who's you know 25 and mid-20s and is thinking about going into the financial industry, that's where the money is, which seems to be a lot of prestige in that, eh, I don't see a future in that, really. I think that industry is going to really shrink and skinny down. It has to. It's 40% of corporate profits. That's ridiculous. When my grandfather, who was a banker, was doing his banking in the 40s and 50s, that consumed only 4 to 5% of the total economy. That's about right for banking. Guess what? There's going to be this huge trimming down in the financial services industry. We have way too much of it. It doesn't produce anything. It shuffles stuff from point A to point B. So these are the kinds of thinkings, and I walk through a lot of this in, in the book more than the, the video series of the crash course. Uh, I talk about what some of these challenges and opportunities are going to be as we go forward. But the one thing I really want to impress on, on anybody who's listening right now is that any hope that the future is going to be just like the present, only bigger, 
I think that hope is misplaced. It could happen, but really the odds are, are stacked up heavily against it at this point in time because our current system requires something that just can't be, which is more resources flowing through it every single moment than the moment before. That's what a growing economy means, and by resources, I'm not just talking about oil at this point, although that is the lubricant of everything. It's tin, it's copper, it's trees, it's bauxite, it's fish, it's the soil that's implied and the food that gets eaten that's accidentally washed out to the sea. All of these things are, are have to be there, and there's so many warning signs for anybody who cares to look at it that that's just not going to be the case. So, you know, those two things really get, get the understanding of what's going on and why and then figure out what are the implications of that knowing that there are really really incredibly important purposeful things that absolutely need doing and our culture is going to have to shift its priorities around in terms of what's important and when they do um, that's when we'll find uh, that, that many of the jobs that I, I think there's a huge number of jobs that do not exist that will exist that will be much more well compensated appreciated rewarding it, however we measure that in the future than they currently are. For the last decade, we've spent more money than we take in. Now, every family knows a little credit card debt is manageable. But if we stay on the current path, our growing debt could cost us jobs and do serious damage to the economy. Uh, let me give you the, uh, the optimistic view. You know, I'm, I'm very confident in this country. We're a AAA country. Uh, Congress has just got to prove that they have the ability now to, to get this done in the, in the short time frame remaining. And I think the forces of reason are getting stronger now. We have now run out of time. If the U.S. defaults, it will lose its top-level AAA credit rating, sparking global economic turmoil. The government won't be able to pay at least half its bills. Millions of Social Security claimants won't get checks, hitting poorer Americans hard. The debt clock is ticking away as the debt ceiling crisis continues to be unresolved. We've been hearing how all of this may affect the nation's budget, but what about your budget? What about your budget? What should you be doing with your personal finances as the uncertainty continues? So joining us is our personal finance expert. You say people should buy gold and silver? Why? Well, that's a place that people are going to uh, as a place of uh, safety. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Chris Martinson, author of The Crash Course. Currently, the Republicans and Democrats are really staring down the barrel of the U.S. debt ceiling. And given what we know now, how do you really see it playing out, and what are the consequences if the debt ceiling isn't raised? Well, if the debt ceiling isn't raised, the, the consequences are pretty dramatic. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through that because I, I don't think that's going to happen. Here's, here's all my predictions on this. There'll be a last-minute deal. It will be really, really underwhelming to everybody else who's looking at it. It'll be something pathetic, like they'll trim a trillion, maybe a trillion and a half dollars over the next 10 years. Okay, that means they're taking 100, 150 billion per year out of the current budget. To put this in context, before this crisis started, the federal budget was about 2.6 trillion dollars, and after the crisis, now it's about mm, 3.8 trillion dollars. So they tacked on 1.2 trillion dollars of new spending, whoop, in about a year. And now they're saying, well, we think we can walk $100 billion of that off. It'll be hard. We'll have to make some compromises. It's going to be tricky. But ultimately, it's not going to deal with the situation. So my, my, you know, I'm underwhelmed currently watching the, the 
partisan rancor that's going on around this. We have a very serious problem that needs an, a really adult-sized uh, supervision. It looks like we have clowns on the job right now um, who are more interested in the, in the partisan points that can be scored because um, we're coming up in an important election year. So it's posturing. It's not really dealing fundamentally with the structural issues which are we are spending as a nation beyond our means. And we've done that for decades. So it's almost like we've lost the muscle memory of how do we not do that? It's a joke. The idea that we're going to take $100 billion out of the budget and call that a meaningful sort of attack on, on the deficit, that is ridiculous. The idea that what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to jigger and, and uh, tweak the CPI calculation to do, move it towards something called a chained uh, dollar average, it's ridiculous. All that's doing is basically taking money away from people who, who've put money into the system and doing it through statistical sleight of hand. It's not dealing with the fundamental issues. Very short answer is, yes, they're going to cut a last-minute deal, and it's going to be underwhelming. And the final asterisk that we have to put on that underwhelming part is, it means that they're attempting to sustain the unsustainable, a completely predictable outcome. Uh, that's kind of how I see it right now. So even if the U.S. doesn't default right now, from what you're saying and from what you've written about and what you what you said you do you do think there's going to come a time where the US does default what would we how would that look like what would a default in the United States look like would we see runs on the bank would we see chaos in the streets like we've seen in the Middle East or would it be something different would it be a calmer more relaxed everyone just slowly realizing the impact and you know Wall Street just crumbling at our feet would it be something like that or would it be something more like the Middle East well, right now, the, the way the system is, is engineered about, um, let's say that the, just at the federal government level, they're overspending by about a trillion and a half dollars right now. About half of that, you know, three quarters of a trillion dollars comes from domestic sources, mostly from the Federal Reserve right now, printing it out of thin air. Different, different story. And about a half comes from foreign lenders at this point in time. So the United States continues its thing, you know, and only shaves a hundred billion off. It goes forward. Everything seems to be okay. But sooner or later, our foreign creditors are going to say, not interested in loaning you this money anymore. Not going to do that. that. That will happen at some point. Then, instead of having, like now, we could meaningfully deal with our budget situation on our own terms by making hard choices now. We won't do that. Instead, what we're going to face are profoundly unpleasant choices later. And the mechanism for that is going to be the bond market will revolt at some point in time. Interest rates will start to shoot up as, as foreign creditors either sell their bonds or fail to buy ours. Next thing you know, we're facing interest rates that are not 3% on the 10-year bond, maybe 4 then 5 then 6 then 8 then 10%. And soon enough, the federal government can no longer even afford the interest payments on the debt that's outstanding, let alone spend any money on discretionary or other mandatory items. When that happens, when that debt spiral finally bites, like it is for Greece right now, it, that same dynamic can be expected to happen here, whether that's in a year or 10 years or 20 years. Hard to say, but it's coming. And when that happens, we'll have to make really, really unpleasant choices where the federal government, my prediction would be, would have to figure out how to trim about 50% of its total budget in probably a year's time. Immensely painful. 10 million people who work in the federal level might be out of work. Who knows? You know, who knows? but it's just going to be um, unpleasant. What's at risk in that process is the dollar itself could 
suffer a really dramatic, if not terminal, decline in value internationally. You know, currency crises often follow fiscal crises in countries. It happened in Argentina. It's happened in Mexico. It's happened in uh, most recently in Thailand, and uh, before that in Thailand in '97. It's happened all over the place. It just hasn't happened to the U.S. in a long time. We have the world reserve currency that's given us some buffer. But eventually it's going to happen, and then we discover in this country that everything is a lot more difficult. Whether this devolves into real anarchy and chaos in certain areas or across the whole country really depends on how fast it happens. Given enough time, people will adjust. You know, One day we'll wake up and say, look back five years and go, wow, how did we have all that? We have so much less today. Things are just a lot harder and, and, and less possible. But if it breaks and happens over a matter of months, things can get really you know, rather unpleasant, and, and that's a risk. I think that's a small risk. I think the higher chance at this point is that we do exactly what we're doing today. We don't make meaningful decisions on the budget. We continue to run deficits that are ridiculous. You know, Interest rates slowly get away from us at some point in the future, and it takes a few years to sort of unwind. That's the most likely outcome. And through that, we discover in this country that you know, we're – we thought we hit a triple. We discover we were placed on third pace. And a lot of that is due to the idea that we do have a major export in this country. We are a huge, gigantic exporting country. We export dollars, and the world takes them. And when that stops, we're suddenly going to discover that life is just a lot more difficult, especially when it comes to our number one import, which is oil. That's going to be the, the, the linchpin to this whole story as we go forward. Excellent. Thanks so much for speaking with us today. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That, that Yes, I am talking all the time about these big changes. i uh, managed to get a few of them right as through time as predictions. They're not really predictions. It's, it's not like it, it, these are just following the trends and sort of extrapolating and saying, here's what's coming next. There are these big changes coming, and it's possible if you see them coming and you orient your life to meet them, that this can be a really exciting time. I've managed to find a life that really feels purposeful to me and, and a job that really feels important. And if this job goes away, I'll find another one. Be adaptive. Be creative. Meet the future. Don't fear it. There's just incredible opportunities coming. We live in really interesting times. And so um, I I would invite anybody who's listening to approach it that way. And I'd be uh, more than happy to to meet you someday because uh, this is I'm over here on the campuses. This is a wild ride. It's a great ride. And uh, let's make the most of it. So that wraps up our conversation with Chris Martinson on the future, our expectations, what can happen if the U.S. debt ceiling isn't raised, and his predictions on the U.S. debt ceiling. So what did you think, Seth? How did that interview impact you? Well, it's hard for me to take seriously the fact that the United States is going to default, even as I see all these things around me telling me that the United States is going down, and the United States is never going to exist the same way it ever used to because of the cheap energy inputs going away. It's just hard for me to wrap my mind around it sometimes that the fact that the world as I've known it for the last, you know, 26 years is just going to change so drastically. Do you ever find it like a, a disconnect from all these people talking to what you see in your everyday life, Justin? In some ways I do, in some ways I don't. I think I'm really fortunate to be here in Vancouver where so many people are willing to take on first of all awareness of 
the ecological challenges in our world uh, because there are people who are willing to do simple little things quite a bit, such as ride their bikes a lot of places and carry around reusable bags and reusable mugs and things. But the fact is this place still runs on a consumer economy and there's a lot of energy that goes in to the actions that everyone in the city takes on. However, everything still functions quite fine here. It's peaceful. It's nice. Canada is a relatively solvent country compared to most every other country. So it's unbelievably peaceful and calm here compared to most every other place in the world right now. Not being in the United States, I don't really know what the sentiment is, but I imagine it's pretty much like it is there most of the time, except that if you've lost your job, suddenly your life is entirely different. If you still have a job, things pretty much more or less are normal. Yeah, having a job kind of makes it seem like the world is not coming to an end, but when you're unemployed and you don't have that paycheck coming in every day, it can really seem like the world is kind of coming to an end. But I think that's been that way for a long time, not just in the current economic situation. What makes this situation different is that so many people are losing their jobs on a regular basis, over 400,000 every week. And it's not like they're getting rehired anytime soon. And the jobs that are being quote unquote created by politicians or whatever, however jobs are created, they aren't exactly the high quality manufacturing related jobs or tech jobs or anything. They're quite often in the service sector. And so what's happening is formerly productive jobs are being replaced with working at McDonald's and being census workers for the government. So there's a continual downgrade in the quality of life. And then the people who are already on the margins have been dumped into doing nothing but living in their cars or floating around or moving back in with their families, uh, whereas maybe they were a young college student and they were planning to get out on their own. Yeah, or going back to school and racking up more debt. Right. Part of the same system. Exactly. So one of the interesting things that Chris Martinson spoke about was the immense age of opportunity for people like us who aren't necessarily invested in the system. All of these changes can seem extremely scary if you have a 401k and you're planning for retirement and you bought your house down in Florida and you're planning to play golf in about three or four years pretty much every day. Facing and staring down the barrel of a gun that's saying that may not happen can be really scary. But for people like us, Seth, we're not necessarily tied so deeply to the system so we can adapt and make changes. What do you think that means? It means that we are in a very dynamic position. We are going to be able to react in a way that is going to be different than people who have invested their entire lives in the system. It means that we are going to be able to make changes in our lives that will be able to reflect the current economic system shifts and downfalls, and we'll be able to move and adapt in a way that other people won't be able to, which is a very exciting place for us to be. It's very lucky that we are where we are in this time of our lives and that we have the foresight to understand these large economic shifts that are coming down and to be able to react accordingly. Yeah, and one of the other interesting things that Chris was talking about was how so many jobs that need to exist don't currently exist. And that gets you thinking about potential career opportunities. I don't know, if the economy starts falling apart, what do you think? your career will then become, Seth? Probably will be a a part-time gardener and maybe a podcaster. I don't know. Yeah, maybe... People people would would want to hear this stuff when there's no mainstream media anymore to tell them anything? Possibly. Maybe we could put out an episode twice a week. Or maybe if there's no more internet or computers, we can be ham radio operators and then we can send messages to each other and have conversations across the continent 
and then, you know, operate local radio stations. And bounce the signals off the moon. Exactly. I was just reading Dmitry Orlov's Reinventing Collapse. He has a new edition out. This was a book that was released back in 2008, and it was about how the United States was going to collapse and all these issues. But he just put out a new edition, and it's really interesting because he has a whole section on career opportunities. And that might seem like, oh no, the United States is going to collapse, what will we do? Well, Dmitry Orlov is saying, don't be paralyzed by the situation, look at it, much like Chris Martinson is saying, as an opportunity. And so he says that there will be opportunities, first off, in scavenging, in salvage. So we already see this with dramatic upticks in air conditioner theft and copper theft, those sorts of things. Black markets are arising. It reminds me of when John Michael Greer was talking about how China is building large blocks of houses and condominiums and skyscrapers to sequester resources in a way that will make jobs available in deconstructing those those houses and condominiums later on when there is a downturn in the economy and they're looking for jobs. Definitely. I thought that was a really interesting insight, whether it's it's true or not, but it's very interesting speculation on John Michael Greer's part. But also Dimitri Orlov wrote about how there's an entirely new market class of the permanently unemployed. And those people will still have little bits of money here and there. They won't have tons of money, but they're going to be looking for a different lifestyle. So if you want to open up a dormitory in a town where they can get a very inexpensive room because they're essentially nomads, or if you have a campsite that also has garden plots, with it or these people are going to need to stash stuff in different places and they need complex and useful GPS systems. You know, those are all products that you can develop to serve to this new market class. And also, healthcare is going to become increasingly unaffordable for most people because in the U.S., your job is tied to your healthcare. And so as those jobs go away, people won't be able to afford healthcare. And so there's tremendous opportunities for practitioners of alternative medicine. And if things got really bad and the currency fell apart, you would think that there wouldn't be pharmaceuticals available. So people who have knowledge of herbs and other kind of tinctures will be extremely in high demand. It's true. We'll need urban shamans more than ever. Perhaps what the extra environmentalists will need to do is get a sailboat and uh, sail around the world on an extra environmentalist tour where we go from continent to continent spreading the message that the extra environmentalist provides. We'll just hoard CDs and then burn episodes of the podcast onto those CDs and hand them out to people wherever we come into port. They will greet us by throwing flowers onto our boat. And their women. Yes. Well, on a lighter note, my grandma is moving from Florida to North Carolina, so I'm going to be able to see her more often, last grandparent. And Justin, I think that you just had a birthday, didn't you? I did. I turned 25 years old. And my 25. Yeah, 25. Oh, my goodness. Yep, the big quarter century, and my parents came out to visit me here in Vancouver, their first time visiting British Columbia and the West Coast, and they really enjoyed it. We went whale watching out on a boat, so I got to see some orcas, which was an amazing amazing birthday activity and then as soon as my parents got back home I was talking to them on the phone and my mom was telling me you know what everyone here in North Carolina is so fat and I was like mom you're being you're being rude and she was like no they seriously are very fat because they got used to being here in Vancouver where people walk around a lot and ride their bikes and are active and everyone's in you know relatively decent shape compared to uh, back home and my mom was saying she was watching on television a news report about how kids were getting enough to eat but every kid in line was like severely overweight 
<laughs> and my mom was like, I think they're getting enough to eat. I mean, I don't want to minimize child food issues, but eh, I think it wouldn't hurt for people to lose five to ten pounds. On well, now that now that Justin has isolated half of our audience. Um, <laughs> If you'd like to contact the Extra Environmentalist, please visit our website at uh, www.extraenvironmentalist.com. Visit us on Facebook uh, at the same name. And our Twitter feed is very active, and we would love to have you follow us or you know, retweet one of our tweets if you feel the need to uh, share the love that the Extra Environmentalist brings to the world. All of our happy, happy insights into the world economic system that we bring to your doorstep. Justin, how can a person and leave a voicemail for the Action Environmentalist. You can give us a call at plus one nine one nine seven zero one XTRA, and that's nine one nine seven zero one nine eight seven two. And we'd absolutely love to hear from you. Send us a voicemail, and I will send you a special secret voicemail mixtape that will play beautiful music to your ears, which is the same feeling that I have when I hear the voicemails. It's like beautiful music to our ears. It is. It's very true. We yeah. we do love the voicemails. Keep listening to the show. Send it to your friends. Send it to your grandmother. Send it to your ex-lovers and your current lovers everyone needs to hear a little more Justin and Richie in their life I think you mean everyone needs to hear more Seth Moser cats in their life however that may be you've just finished another episode of the Extra Environmentalist and we're so very proud of you now get out there and go harvest those tomatoes find ways to interview them and incorporate them into future podcast episodes okay that sounds like a good idea maybe we can uh we can pick a few of the ugly ones and and eat them (laughs) i don't know whether to leave that in or not (laughs) uh so all those future uh sacrificial extra environmentalist virgins beware that we might eat you instead of procreate with you (laughs) definitely <laughs> what do you think? Should I do it Try again? one more. <clears throat> You're listening to the Extra Environmentalist with Chris Martinson today. He wrote The Crash Course The Unsustainable Future of Our Economy, Energy, and Environment. Can you do Darth Vader? Order. <laughs> oh, yeah. The Crash Course.